You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Uh, so as Gabe mentioned, my name is Steve. Uh, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, if you're new, I, uh, you'll see me up here every once in a while, but not, not that often. So uh, I'm excited to, to, to share with you today. Um, yeah, just as, as Gabe mentioned, we're in uh, the series of uh, going through the different books of the Psalms and how it's structured is really interesting. Uh, so, you know, we've gone through uh, three of the books already, and, um, and uh, today we're going to go through book four, which is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. Uh, but before we get into our passage, I briefly wanted to start in Psalm 1, uh, which is just really cool how, uh, how the biblical authors like structured the book of Psalms is... Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of like an introduction to the entire books of, book of the Psalms. And book, or sorry, Psalm 1 in particular gives us like a, an introduction um, to the reader. And it kind of gives us like, here's, here's what the purpose of the Psalms is. Uh, it gives us a blessing and an instruction of how to read the Psalms. So I just wanted to start really with, with reading, uh, reading a, a section of Psalm 1 here, which is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaves do not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. And that line of on his law he meditates day and night um, is often considered to be a hint that actually the, the five books of, of Psalms are meant to be kind of a con- contemplative guide that goes along with uh, the Pentateuch, the f- first five books of the Bible. Um, so book one correlates to Genesis, book two to Exodus, book three to Leviticus, and then book four, what we're going through today is Numbers, and then next week, book five, Deuteronomy. And, uh, you know, it's really, um, you know, if we're meant to, to meditate on the law of God through the Psalms here, uh, you know, and just really be like they like that word picture he gives us of being like a tree planted by streams of water, which is just such a cool image of just like the source of of life is obviously not in yourself. You're just meant to draw in these things, and then you yield fruit in in due season from that being being filled up. So, like we said, Matt led us through uh, Psalm 23 a couple of weeks back in a series uh, that was covering Book One. Gabe led us through Psalm 42 in Book Two, and then Psalm 77 last week. Uh, was for book three. And this week, we're in book four. Again, Psalm 90 through 106, which correlates to the book of Numbers. And if you didn't pick up on it from the reading, we're going through Psalm 95. Um, But there's so many really cool things we could have focused on in each of these books. I mean, it's kind of, we're talking about just the prep, each of us kind of taking a section of this, like, it's a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Psalms in each individual book. You could go a lot of different directions with it. Um, You know, for example, in this book, you know, it starts off with Psalm 90, which I, I just, Recent, more and more recently, been loving Psalm 90. Uh, it's the start of Psalm, of the book four, and it's attributed to Moses, which is really cool. I think even a couple months ago, I did, didn't even realize that Moses was attributed to any of the Psalms, but uh, Psalm 90 is one that's attributed to Moses, um, which is just really crazy to think about. You know, that's, you know, 400, 500 years before, or 1400 years before Jesus, but like 400 years before David, which is like most of where, what the Psalms uh, that, we, that we recognize. Um, but Psalm 90 specifically speaks about just like the brevity of our lives, kind of talks about, you know, how, you know, we're given maybe, you know, what he mentioned, 70 or 80 years 
Uh, so he talks about like, the, the, the brief kind of point in time that our lives are, but he also pleads for mercy for the secret sins of our heart. And a lot of, a lot of people say that that psalm in particular was written um, right after the whole golden calf situation. So he's like, it's just a, a, a psalm where he's just pleading for mercy. And so just to, he closes out that, that psalm with these words, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad for all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and give us as many years as we have seen evil. It's kind of emo, but it's, I actually really like that. Let your work be shown to your servants and let your glorious power to their children. Let, your fav- let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So we could have spent just all of our time there. Um, and then Psalm 98 is another one that's just an amazing psalm. It's so, just pure worship where the psalmist talks about nature's response to God. He says, let the sea, seas roar and all that fills it. Let the world and all those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing, their, uh, sing for joy together. And now most of you will have a song stuck in your head the rest of the day. That, so you're welcome for that. But instead, we're going to focus on Psalm 95, which may seem like an odd choice. I don't know if you kind of heard it or felt it, like in Gabe's closing words there. Um, it seems like an odd place to end. We feel like psalms should always end in like this glowing optimism, or even if it's like a, a psalm of like hardship or whatever, that it like puts this positive spin on the end, uh, which is, I think a lot of it's like kind of cultural for us, like, you know, it, whatever from Hollywood or whatever. We always expect the he- heroes to win and movies to end in these, you know, bright and sunny ways. Uh, but, the, you know, the Bible is, is not written always like that. Uh, I think more of like, you know, my, my sister showed me a Bollywood movie one time. If you guys have ever seen like foreign films, they're not bound to the same rules of things ending well. <laughs> so I just remember one time watching this movie with my sister and it ended horrendously. I forget how it ended, like everybody died or whatever. And I'm just like, why did you show me this? Like this, like, I was like literally upset. Um, but I've recently learned, and we kind of talked about this at the men's retreat a little bit, to not pull away from those awkward conclusions in the Bible. They're usually pointing to something really good if you sit in them long enough. So while ending a psalm on God's wrath doesn't seem very 21st century appropriate to us, um, there's also a thread here that connects from the book of Numbers to the book of Psalms to the book of Hebrews that does not take much pulling to find us from the, that takes us from the disobedience of God's people directly to the foot of the cross. So if you would, let's pray one more time and then um, we can just kind of discover what God's word says for us here. Lord, we just pray for um, our hearts this morning and um, just with, with all of how your word is, is just strung together in such a beautiful way, this um, consistent uh, teaching, consistent thought, Lord, we just pray that you'd uh, um, just still my heart and spirit that I'm able to communicate uh, these things that, that you communicate so well through your word, Lord, and just give us all um, ears to hear that. So let me pray. Amen. So I don't know if you noticed it in that first reading is that Psalm 95 is actually broken into two parts. Um, I'll read the first part here and we'll kind of contemplate on that and then we'll go into the second part. But the first part starts off, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And just put a mental pin in that phrase, the rock of our salvation. We'll come back to that. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. 
In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are also are his also. For the seas are his, for he the seas are his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So we'll pause there. Up to this point, this psalm is just a psalm of praise to God for what he's done. And this section is really intent on identifying God as the king of all creation. I don't know if you'll pick up on that, but Psalm 93 through 95 actually all uses this super similar language of like this king creator. Kind of uses that same same imagery throughout. You can hear it too, hear it here as well. The psalmist calls God a great king above all other gods. The psalmist also speaks of God holding the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains and making the sea and forming the dry land. I kind of think back to the forming of the dry land. I get this picture of if you've been to the Oregon coast, what's the OSU aquarium out there? Not the Oregon coast aquarium, but what, Hatfield, thank you. They have this like sand table there. It's just total, total sidebar. It just popped into mind. But it's like yeah, they have a sand table there. We could like scoop the sand and then it shows like the topographic like features of that. It just, it's so cool. I just think about like when God's forming the land like that. It's just kind of the picture that comes to mind. Uh, but yeah, so the psalmist speaks of, of, you know, of God being like kind of this creator, king creator God. So we're called to worship God as king, as maker, and he calls us to recognize ourselves as the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So this reference uh, to like being sheep in a pasture is obviously shepherding imagery. It doesn't take much to recognize that. Uh, but as we'll see in a minute here, it's actually an invitation, like for the rest of the psalm, really drives us as an invitation to recognize ourselves as, you know, really connect us with being God's people, like the wandering tribes of Israel being sheep in the pasture. And uh, so maybe that might seem like a stretch off the bat, but the rest of this psalm really kind of brings it home. So from here, we'll look at the second half of the psalm, and it shifts of being from a psalm of praise to one of warning. And actually, you'll hear a change in voice. Listen to the, listen to the, the, the tense, the, the, the first person versus third person tense is super interesting. So I'll wind, I'll go back a verse to kind of ramp into it here. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You hear that, that's, that verb tense switch here? The last part of seven, the voice switches from the third person to the first person. And the psalm switches from being a psalm of praise to being a prophetic speaking in the voice of God. And the warning of that voice is to not harden our hearts the way that the people did uh, during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And just thinking about what a hardened heart is, um, I read this great quote in preparation for this uh, by Donald Guthrie. He says, a hardened state of mind becomes impervious to God's voice and becomes increasingly ignorant of his ways, not because God does not make them known, but because the hardened mind has no disposition to listen. And that really, that really struck with me. So the psalmist warning here is for us not to harden our hearts. And he mentions this story of Meribah in Massa as a way of saying, don't do what they did. So we'll get into the specific story of Meribah and Massa here in a second, but it's just helpful to understand, actually, 
those, those words, those, that place and the time is named after uh, these Hebrew words. For Meribah means to quarrel or to con contention, like fighting. And then Massa is testing. So it's like when he says, do not do what they did at Meribah, the place of contention, in the day of Massa, in the day of testing. So it's kind of just the language is, is important for, for what's going on here. So what we'll do here is we'll go do like a 50,000-foot pass over the book of Numbers just because it's really important to, to remember that story of Numbers and, and what the psalmist is kind of calling us back to. So the book of Numbers picks up right as God's people are leaving Mount Sinai, and, uh, and it documents what's supposed to be a, a short journey from there into the promised land. And of course, we know that it doesn't end up being a short journey, it ends up being quite a long journey. Um, so the book is actually named after two censuses that are taken. The first census is taken at Mount Sinai, and it's a way of counting the able-bodied people in preparation for battle, in preparation for war. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, just, you know, that census saying, okay, we're, we're taking a census in preparation for war, it kind of implies we're going to war, right? So the, uh, the idea here is that you know, there's that, that idea of that contention, quarreling. It's kind of like the, the setting of this whole book. This book of Numbers is about contending, but it's supposed to be contending alongside God for the purposes that he's assigned. And so instead of us quarreling alongside God, the people begin to test and quarrel with God himself. So much so that actually the book of Numbers, the majority of the book of Numbers, chapters 11 to 21, is dedicated to describing these seven, seven separate occasions where the people of God quarrel, or the people quarrel against God over and over again. So one of these seven rebellions, out of those seven rebellions, there's actually two really significant ones that actually the psalmist is calling our attention to both of these. Um, and the first one is that it's an event that angers God so much that Moses isn't allowed to enter the promised land. And the second event is an event that angers God so much that an entire generation of God's people isn't able to enter the promised land. So we'll look at those. So Numbers 20, uh, 2 through 13. This is the waters of Meribah story. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And we have made you and, and you and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to an evil place? And there is no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take this staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock and give them to drink, give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring the water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, when the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. So this is actually the second event of bringing water from a rock. 
The first time, uh, God tells Moses to strike the rock, but this time God tells him to speak to the rock, but Moses strikes it instead. And I always thought it kind of was a disproportionate response of like from God uh, to ban Moses from the promised land on a technicality, striking rather than speaking. Uh, but let's look at actually, I think is the real reason here. It's what Moses says to the people. He says, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses kind of losing the storyline a little bit. He wasn't abiding in God in these moments. He's thinking that he and Aaron are more important than they, than they are. Um, he lost sight of who the rock of salvation really was. And this is that, that rock of salvation. Like it's also uh, salvation sometimes can be a loaded term for us of like, we can also hear it as like our rock of rescue. Like, so what's more rescuing in the desert when you don't have water than a rock that spews out water? Um, so yeah, this rock, rock of rescue is kind of, it's also what the psalmist is, is playing on there. Uh, so that's the first rebellion. The second major rebellion is not only with Moses, but the entire congregation. And God instructs Moses to send 12 men to spy out the land and to bring back fruit from the land. So Moses heads out the heads of the people of Israel. And remember, this group had been preparing for war. So these, the heads of the people are not like peacetime leaders. They're basically generals. They're supposed to be like brave people. But the spies go into the land uh, and see the fruit of the land. There's literally clusters of grapes too large to carry back. But while Caleb and Joshua bring back a factual report, their exact quote is, the land is good. The rest of the leaders stir up the people in fear, and they say, this land devours its inhabitants. And that report takes over. That, that kind of story spreads throughout the camp. The people are terrified, and they quarrel again with Moses and with God, saying they should go back to Egypt, back to slavery. People would rather go back to what they, uh, to what they are what they know than to trust in the promise that God's already made to them, that he would give them that land. So this is the rebellion. It's actually the turning point in the entire book of Numbers. This, at this point, they're like headed into the promised land, and it's about two years in. And from this point, they turn back, and it's 38 additional years from this point. Um, so before and after this, they continue to rebel against God. But this one event, um, God is actually has a different response kind of than all others. Uh, it's in Numbers 14, 11 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a greater nation more, and, sorry, make for you, make of you a, great, a nation greater and mightier than they. So the people have hardened their hearts towards God so much that he's seemingly ready to wipe the slate clean and start again. But this is an amazing story that's actually like the thesis statement of the book of Numbers. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people before God. And I wish we had time to like nerd out on all of the features of the book of Numbers that points to this as being like the center of the story. Um, but we don't have time. And so like, let's grab coffee sometime and do that because it's really cool. Um, but Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God relents. That story here, number, Numbers 14, verse 17. And now, this is Moses speaking to God. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. 
But truly as I live, and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. So in, this is the moment that actually the psalmist is pointing to at the, at the very end of the Psalm 95.11 where he says, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is, this is the moment. They hardened their hearts towards God, and they rebelled against him. And in the moment when God had every right to abandon them, someone intercedes on their behalf. So what do we do with that? That's, that's where the psalm ends. <laughs> There's still an entire generation that didn't get into the land. Also, the guy who intercedes is flawed. I mean, he's puts himself, in, in the previous story, he put himself in the place of God when he had no business to be there. Not only that, the people that do make it into the land of Canaan, their problems don't just like end there. Um, the story is cool from the Psalms, but it's incomplete in some ways. The psalmist is telling us that the story is incomplete by ending on such a strange note. But luckily for us, we know the story doesn't end there. That's where we jump into the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews picks up the story where the psalmist left off, because at this point, we know who the ultimate intercessor is. We know where the ultimate rest lies. It's not in Moses, though he was great, and it's not in the promised land. I'm sure that's great, too. Jesus is the better high priest, the ultimate rest, and it's no longer about God's people entering a promised place, but it's about abiding in God himself. The promised rest resides in God, which he made directly accessible to us through his Son. Hebrews 3 says this, 1 through 6, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in, to, in all God's house, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to the confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Jesus is the high priest of our confession. that has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. And then also uh, the author of Hebrews here points to another kind of analogy that Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus is faithful as a son. So Jesus is our ultimate rest. We cannot, however, you know, it's, I, I kind of wanted to end it there, honestly. Like, Jesus is, is our rest, and he is. But there's also a consistent warning of all three of these messages, from Numbers to the Psalms, and then in Hebrews here as well. Um, we can't ignore these warnings that are given to us here. And the author of Hebrews and Psalmist use the same word, actually, to emphasize the immediacy of the warning. They use this word today. So Hebrews 3, 7 through 19 he actually starts off by quoting the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, I'm sorry, therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion at the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the author of Hebrews starts his commentary here. Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil, it, sorry, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold, hold our original confidence firm to the end. So again, today, as long as it's called today, we need to protect ourselves from the deceitfulness of sin. And now the author of Hebrews uses this word today. It's like an emphasis of like, it's not, it didn't like expire today. So this reference over and over again to today is meant to show us that it's not an instruction to a prior people of how to enter the promised land. It's a daily reminder for us to reside in God's ultimate rest. Like the author of Hebrews said, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And listen, just because we're in church right now, I'm very convicted of this, you know, all the time. Just because we're in church right now doesn't mean that we're not hardening our hearts towards God, even in this very moment. That's the craziness of sin. We can hear endless stories of the people of Israel quarreling with God and testing God and sit comfortably with ourselves while we do the same things. Sin is incredibly deceitful, and this way we are completely prone to cognitive dissidence, where we justify ourselves and our wrong actions, even when those actions are inconsistent with our own state of beliefs. We're like really good at justifying these things in our heads. So both the psalmist and the author of Hebrews pr provides us with ways to not allow our hearts to be hardened. The author of Hebrews says it right there with this verse we've read a couple times. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened with the deceitfulness of sin. So inside the family here, we can hold each other accountable to the hardness of our hearts towards God. And the other defense is kind of like it. The psalmist uh, you know, mentions uh, this, this statement here. He says, they go astray, when speaking of the people of Israel, they go astray in their heart, they have not known my, for they have not known my ways. So like knowing God's ways and pointing each other uh, to God's ways is a defense of a hardened heart as well. So God's ultimate rest is secure. And Hebrews 4.3 says, for we who have believed have entered that rest. But then there's also these other warnings here. Hebrews 4.11, a couple verses later. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may, be, uh, may fall to the same sort of disobedience. It's kind of interesting. Like, I wish you could like ask the author of Hebrews here, like, which is it? Have we entered the rest or are we striving to enter the rest? And I think their answer would be yes. <laughs> so it's, this is the tension of living in God's kingdom. It's, we use this term a lot, but it's like the idea of already but not yet. It's just like the way God's kingdom functions. It's super interesting. So please don't hear these warnings as works-based salvation. It's all about surrender and residing in the promises of God, which are secure. Um, I think Greg next week is going to show us really, you know, how God is continually faithful to his promises to his people. So now that we've basically taken an entire tour of the Bible, sorry, not sorry, um, I want to close back in our psalm as, as a reflection now, kind of a slow reading of it, uh, just, with the, just with the story of numbers and then kind of the, the ending that, that Hebrews puts on it as well, um, just to read through this Psalm 95. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are also his. For the sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, um, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, for they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let us then trust in the promises of God, not hardening our hearts. Let's take every day, as long as it's called today, to exhort one another, challenge one another, to protect against the deceitfulness of sin, and let us remember God's ways and choose God's ways over our own ways. And in this way, we can enter through, uh, rent, enter his rest, that ultimate seventh-day Sabbath rest, through his ultimate high priest, who intercedes uh, on our behalf in the midst of our quarreling and testing.